This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. On uh, the letter of Paul to the church in Rome uh, that we call Romans, right? Why? Why are we studying this letter? Or why do we study the Bible at all? We believe that not only is it inspirational, uh, but that it's actually inspired, uh, that it actually has been given to us by God through the power of the Holy Spirit to a person who is a real person, uh, a guy who was radically changed uh, by the gospel message itself, whose, whose life and trajectory was completely altered as he met the person of Jesus. And uh, through his wisdom and his unique personality and his uh, understanding of way of life, he felt called to, to encourage a community of people that had gathered in the city of Rome, right? The, the greatest city of the age, the most powerful military, uh, the financial center or cultural center, a place of pagan worship, a place that, that dominated the landscape. And yet there was this group of people there who were seeking to be faithful Uh, They wanted to follow Jesus because they too had been rescued by Christ. They had experienced the deep, deep love of Jesus, and they wanted to to live out that faith. And Paul writes this letter to them, and he shares with them in all this uh, glorious majesty uh, the, the understanding of who God is and what does it mean that Jesus has come and entered into their lives. What does it mean that Jesus has accomplished salvation for them? That he's come from the glory of heaven to enter into their struggle and their, their uh, discouragement and their fear and their oppression. And he's come to give them life and he's come to give them hope. He's communicated to them, this is what I've done for you. To forgive you and to redeem you and to set you apart as my children, my family, called and now equipped to serve and to love. And we know as we've been studying this text, we, we, we know the, the scope of history and how this group of people were inspired by these words to live out the gospel and empowered by Jesus himself and the Holy Spirit. What happened? They completely turned that whole city upside down. Everything changed. Instead of becoming a, a pagan center, it became a Christian epicenter. It was the, the center of Christian thought and significance and culture and art for a thousand years or more. These people who just were gathering in a room to study God's word and to try to apply it to their lives transformed the world. It's a pretty amazing thing when you think about it. And so that's why it's helpful to study the Bible, to study what was Paul saying to them and what might God be saying to us as we listen in on that conversation, how would God want to remind us of the good news of the gospel, uh, that, that we've been claimed and set free, that, that we who live in a cultural center, in a significant nation, a military power with, with culture, but also uh, paganism, what would God have us to live and to be and to do right where we are? Like when you go to school tomorrow, or when you go to spring break tomorrow, or when you're at work, or when you're relating to the people in your city, or when you're thinking about, what should I be doing? What is God saying to you about how this word that he's spoken to the church in Rome now also can speak to you to give you hope, to give you faith, to empower you to be the person that God wants you to be? All those things are embedded in this text as we're listening, as we're learning, and as we're seeking to apply this. What a great privilege it is 
for us to be able to encounter this word. And so my, pro- my hope and prayer is the same for every Sunday, that you would be able to hear from God, that he would speak through the text, that something that, that God encourages me to say would encourage you, but you'd be listening for God's voice, and then you'd be willing to respond in obedience to what that voice is. Uh, they didn't just get together and study God's word. They didn't just get together and say, wow, you know, God said some amazing things. Uh, they allowed the word to transform them, to be different people after encountering it and go about changing their city and their world. So what is it that God's saying to you and how is he calling you to respond in obedience? It doesn't have to be to change the world. It just means to change one thing. What's the one thing that God is asking you uh, to do? So as we're studying this, uh, this, this letter, we learned uh, last week that, that we are to submit to the, government, the governing authorities. All right, what does that mean? That means a lot of different things. But we know that, that God has established uh, three different institutions, right? One is the government uh, that God has put over people, and he has established those institu- that institution. He's also given us an institution of the home, our, our, our family, are not only just mom, dad, and kids, but our extended family. That institution is a vitally important. That, that institution appears in Genesis chapter 2. Um, we also know that the church is an institution that God has given. So the government, the family, and the church are all these institutions. And he's writing to this group of people, again, who are seeking to be faithful, knowing that there will be great challenge and difficulty that come. Right when Paul's writing this letter things are probably pretty good for them because there hasn't been this great distinction between the Christians and the Jews yet. The Jews were permitted to live and to exist uh, under the Roman government, and the Christians were kind of just finding their way in there. But eventually, there would be a great persecution that would come, a great challenge, uh, more uh, significant um, pressure on them to stop saying, Jesus is Lord, but rather to say, Caesar is Lord. Right? Recognizing that, that that's a pretty significant difference, right? Caesar is Lord. That the, the governor is the one who is sovereign over all things. But this is a pretty countercultural thing to say, no, that's not the person who's in ultimate power. Rather, Jesus is the one who's in power. And so instead of doing what you asked me to do, Caesar, I have an obligation to live unto Jesus. And that's going to mean that what you say and what you want may be different than what Jesus wants. And so when that began to become real, the distinctions between those who said Jesus is Lord and those who said Caesar is Lord, as those differences came about, then persecution came. Because people are, it probably just started out saying, hey man, what, you know, come on, why you gotta, why you gotta go on this way? Why don't you just go ahead and, and say Caesar is Lord? Burn the incense on the altar, it's not a big deal. Or why are you making those decisions to follow Christ when you should be making the decisions to, to follow country? Well, that begins to create tension and there's persecution. Hey, maybe that's a possibility for us too. Who knows? The church throughout the ages has suffered and has experienced persecution. What will it be? The time to prepare for those moments and for those decisions is not when they come. It's now. It's to study God's word and to know his word and to love Jesus so much to see that he is worthy of our pursuit and of our, of our lives, that when those decisions come, we'll be increasingly saying, Jesus is Lord, come what may. 
So these institutions are, are there, and, and Russell last week shared about what does it look like for us to, to submit to those governing authorities, though. There is an aspect that God has put them in power, and we are to submit to them unless the government tries to usurp the power of the church. And there are times that we see in the, in the scriptures when the, the government would call people to do things that are unfaithful. Uh, and we think about uh, the, those uh, the, um, in the Old Testament. Um, when the women were asked to, to kill the children and the midwives said no. They stood up essentially to the government. But in general, we're called to submit to the governing authorities. Um, rulers must bear the sword and they have the, the power to inflict punishment and even um, to take life in some cases. But God has established human government because humanity sins and we need authority over us. Everyone needs to have an authority over them. And even though we don't always maybe respect the person who's in the office, we are called to respect and honor the office itself because government was ordained by God. You know, we know that Paul, he even appealed to the government. He said, I'm appealing to Caesar. And eventually he went to Rome. The whole journey of Acts is his, uh, or the end of the book of Acts is his journey to get to Rome. So, then at the end of uh, so far, sorry, verse 7 says, pay what you owe, taxes, revenue, respect, and honor. If we don't pay our taxes, we show disrespect to the law and to the government. While we may not always agree with everything that's being done with the resources, we are called to engage in that process. But today, in the verses that Paul is sharing that kind of build on these submitting to the authorities, honor the government, uh, act within your conscience, Paul gives us a command to love. He speaks to us in these three verses about what does it mean to be a person of love in the midst of the moment that we're in. How do we love one another and, and, um, and serve God in this way? So let's turn now to Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is the word of God. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. The word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for the love that you've shown to us through your son, Jesus. Thank you for this letter that Paul wrote to his friends to encourage them. I pray that it would encourage us, that it would, it would also challenge us. It would help us to be the people that you want us to be so that you would transform this culture for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, there was a class in seminary called Sex and Cults. S-E-C-T-S. Sects and Cults. What's a sect? What's a cult? Uh, in this class, I didn't take it. Uh, Brandy took it, and my, many of my friends did. But it was just an examination of 
what are these different um, groups of people who have somehow either existed under the umbrella of the Christian faith or maybe have even fractured out to be not Christian anymore but have a lot of uh, things in common, right? So we have different uh, sects or cults. Uh, there's uh, Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness or uh, Christian Science. And it was an examination of all these different uh, these different uh, ways that people have either understood or maybe even misunderstood Jesus. Usually, uh, they center around a misunderstanding of who Jesus is. And so, one of my friends and I got into a conversation uh, about, uh, about Rastafarianism. I had been to Jamaica a couple of times uh, on mission trips and had uh, met and served with some, some Christians there, but I also encountered some Rastas. Man? Eman. Hey, it's Rastaman. And so just examining that faith, where it came from, because in the Rastafarian faith, smoking weed is a sacrament. So I was confused by that. And so this led into a conversation about Bob Marley. And I thought, well, you know, what's Bob Marley about, right? You know, he sings that song, One Love, and a lot of different songs uh, tragically died. And, uh, and so, but I, he was, my friend was suggesting, he said, I think Bob Marley is a believer. And I'm like, a believer in what, man? So we had this conversation going back and forth. But here, I, wanna, I want you to listen to this. Uh, here's some of the lyrics to his song, Bob Marley's song, One Love, right? One love, one heart. I'm not going to sing it because that would be bad. Um, let's get together and feel all right. Hear the children crying. Hear the children crying. Give thanks and praise to the Lord, and I will feel all right. He goes on. Have pity on those. I'm oh, sorry. Let's get together to fight this holy Armageddon. One love. So when the man comes, there will be no, no doom. Have pity on those whose chances grow thinner. There ain't no hiding place from the father of creation, saying one love, one heart. Now, look, I don't know if Bob Marley is a believer. And there are some, I have some significant issues with the Rastafarian practices. Mon. But I hear these words, and I think maybe Bob Marley knows Jesus. Maybe he knows because he's speaking about this one love that transcends everything. And you know what? If I get to heaven and Bob Marley is there, that's going to make the party even greater. And if he's not... There's a sadness that I'll experience in my heart. But in the song, he's talking about love, right? If you think about what, what are the, the subjects, uh, what's the, the most common subject in songs, right? If you could think of, of like, what are most songs written about? Um, a lot of the time, it's either love or, or lost love or heartbreak. When, when a love that we've had is now gone. Many people write songs about that. Why? Because it's such a thing that, that moves us. And here Paul is talking to the church in Rome about love. It's interesting to me that he's gone from saying, respect the governing authorities, um, act in line with your conscience, but now he says to, to love, to love one another. You know, whatever, um, the first thing he says here, look at this. And I think that what he's talking about is love has a practical, tangible aspect to what it is. Um, it's not just simply a feeling, although it certainly constitutes a feeling. He says, owe no one anything. 
And that kind of flows out of verse verse 7. If you go back to verse 7, it says, Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything. Whatever we owe, we are to pay, Paul says. We should pay our taxes. We should respect those who are deserving. We should honor those who are to be honored. One of the ways that we love is to not owe anyone anything. Now, this doesn't mean to me, I don't think, that you can't take a loan out. You can't borrow. Uh, It means, though, that we should, I think, uh, keep short accounts. That is, paying people off what we owe them. Let's say someone comes and works for you. Someone provides a service to you. They should be paid in due time. You should not withhold the payment for work that has been done for you. If you receive a service, you should pay. Now, you want to get a good deal. I know everyone likes a good deal, but you should also pay what that service is worth so that the person who's providing the service can feed and flourish in their own, feed their family and flourish in their own life. We don't want to squeeze every single dime out of every person. Because you see, love isn't a feeling at all. It is at all. It is a feeling, but it's not just a feeling. It's a tangible expression. By paying someone what you owe them is a way, I think Paul is saying, is to love them. It's honoring that person and saying the work that you've done is dignified. And here's what's astounding to me in this next section, what Paul says. He says, in doing so, we're fulfilling the law. When you pay someone what, they, what they're owed, when you honor someone, when you love someone, you're essentially fulfilling the law. Now, well, what does that even mean? I'm going to take a stab at it here. Okay, so first of all, what is the law? What does Paul mean when he talks about the law? He's talked about the law with us extensively, especially uh, Romans 7, talking about fulfilling the law and our failure to be able to fulfill the law. The law generally means the Ten Commandments and everything that the Ten Commandments imply, right? Honor your mother and father that the days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, uh, have no other gods before me, do not make any graven images. These represent to us the Ten Commandments. They, They reveal to us the character of God. They reveal to us how important it is that God is is holy. He is separate and different. He is completely pure and righteous. And the Ten Commandments reveal that to us. Because what they imply are all these other aspects of what it means to to live as a separate kind of people. Right? This is what the church in Rome is, is trying to navigate, right? They live in the city of Rome. They have to do commerce with everyone else. They are wanting to follow Jesus as Lord, but they're living in a city that says Caesar as Lord. So there's two different value systems. So they're wanting to live as distinct people, right? And that's what we're called to do. We, we want to live as distinct people who are different from the world. And yet we don't want to be so different that we're weird. We don't want to be so different that no one can access the God that we love because we, we don't even speak the language of the culture. Right? So we, we live in that tension of saying, okay, I don't want to assimilate into the world and do everything that the world does because then I won't be distinct as a follower of Jesus. I won't be different than the world. But I don't want to be so different from the world that you can't even understand me. Right? We, when we lived in New Jersey, we went to Amish country. 
And it was fun, you know? They got weird things like shoe fly pie and all these baked goods, and they work on wood, and we, we hired a guy to drive around in the car and show us the different farms, and there's no power and all that different stuff. And there's kind of varying levels of, you know, how Amish are you? Like in every culture, you got the, you got the conservatives who are like old order Amish, and then you got the liberals who will actually talk on the phone if needed, right, you know? And so there's all these little nuances um, but, but some of them don't even speak English. And you go, how are you wanting to communicate your faith to the world around you if you can't speak the language of the country that you're in? Imagine us sending our, our team that we have in Lebanon and saying, hey, just go speak English to everybody in Lebanon so that way they'll have to learn English so that you can share the gospel with them. Now, one of the things they do is they go to uh, a language school because you've got to be able to speak the language. So for us, as followers of Jesus, we're wanting to speak the language, but not adopt all the culture. That's the challenge of being a Christian today, of saying, how do I relate and connect, and yet be also distinct in a way? And the law reveals to us how we are called to be distinct, how we are called to be different from the world around us. Look at what he goes on to say. In verse 9, let me read verse 9 to you. For the commandments, verse 9, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So all these commandments that we know, don't commit adultery or murder, don't steal, They're summed up in love your neighbor as yourself. These laws that reveal the character of God, Paul is saying these are the ways that we can love people. So a lot of times when we just read the Ten Commandments or we see them posted on a wall, we just just kind of breeze past them, right? Ten Commandments. Okay, let's, uh, number seven. Anyone know number seven? Do not commit... Adultery, right? We go, okay, check. Didn't do that today. Great. But like anything, the more we study something, the more we realize there's, there's, there's more to say. Uh, there's actually a really good resource for this. This is fascinating. When we, when we train officers, um, elders and deacons, they're required to read through the Westminster Confession of Faith and the catechisms. And these are tools that were written 500 years ago that tell us, here's what we think the Bible teaches, now, in the Presbyterian Church, they're, they're really important documents because they are what we say the Bible says. They're, they're not above the Scriptures, but they are written by people who really had the Bible in mind. And, you know, you can say if you're a follower of Jesus, you can say, well, I just believe what the Bible says. Well, what does it say? Well, here's what it says. Everyone has an opinion about what it says. And so being Presbyterian, one of our values is saying, okay, this is in general what we think the Bible is saying. We respect other people's views on different matters. It's fine, but this is in general what we're saying. And part of what we're saying comes from the Westminster Confession of Faith. You can find it online, just Google it. Make sure you Google in modern English or you're going to be reading like the King James Version of it. But it tells us, here's what we think the Bible says. And so uh, the, the deacons and elders, when they go through the training, they look at that document and they're like, oh man. But then when you read it, you realize, wow, this is really fascinating. It helps me understand what the Bible says. So I'm just going to read to you a little bit about what the catechism says. A catechism is a form of learning with question and answer. 
And it's what it says about some of these commandments to get a sense of what our tradition has said about what this is teaching. This is not the end-all, be-all of all what it says, but it's just one aspect of what it means. So, for example, question number 138 in the larger catechism says, what are the duties required in the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment is, you shall not commit adultery. The duties required in the seventh commandment, this is what's required of us. This is not, hey, don't do this. This is what we are called to do in light of the seventh commandment. And keep this in mind. The whole point of this is, this is how we love one another. This is what Paul is saying to us. This is how we love one another. Listen to what it says. Chastity in body, mind, affections, words, and behavior. That everything that I say and think and do would be chaste, would be pure. The preservation of chastity in ourselves and in others. Watchfulness over our eyes and all the senses. Temperance and keeping of chaste company. Modesty in apparel. Marriage by those who do not have the gift of abstinence. With conjugal love and cohabitation. Diligent labor in our callings and shunning all occasions of uncleanness and resisting temptations to it. Those are the things that we can actively do in a way to obey the seventh commandment. Seeking to be chaste in what we think about and how we talk and engaging in those opportunities to be able to do that. What does it say? Uh, what are sins forbidden in the seventh commandment? This is question number 139. The sins forbidden in the seventh commandment, besides the neglect of the duties required, are following adultery, fornication, unnatural lusts, all unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, and desires, all corrupt or filthy communications, or listening to them. Even listening to filthy communications is prohibited by the seventh commandment. Wanton or excessive looks, disrespectful or seductive behavior, immodest in peril, prohibiting lawful marriages and allowing unlawful marriages, allowing, tolerating, or running places of prostitution or resorting to them, entangling vows of singleness, having more wives or husbands than one at the same time. Good advice. Unjust divorce or desertion, idleness, gluttony, drunkenness, unchaste company, lewd songs, books, pictures, dances, or stage plays, and all other provocations to uncleanness or acts of uncleanness, either in ourselves or others. That's just one group of people's impression of this one commandment. That kind of expands the reality of what this actually means. It gives you more to think about, more to, to, to reflect on in your own heart. Instead of just a couple of uh, bullet points, we see that there's more to it. And this begins to get at the heart of how are we relating to one another in community, in our culture? Are we honoring one another? Are we honoring God with what we think about? So to fulfill the law, we love one another by not doing things and by doing things. But here's the deal. You can't really make a list that's long enough to go through everything. Even when I begin to read that, it kind of gets a little bit tedious, doesn't it? The language is obscure. 
But it's also like, wow, there's a lot of stuff. But boy, I think if you sat down for another hour, you could probably write out a big long list. And so then what are we going to do? Just write bigger and longer lists and lists and lists. And see, then what happens is you go, did I do everything on the list? And instead, Paul is just saying, simply love. We don't need all the laws if the law is love. Because we know what love is. You see, we could easily just get into this, well, I wasn't having an affair. I didn't do that. But were you having inappropriate conversations? Were you talking too long? Right? Were you talking with someone else about how your marriage is struggling? See, the command to, to love moves us in the way to say, I need to love my spouse. And I need to love other people's spouses in a way that prevents me from engaging with them in an inappropriate way. That's what really love is. And so you see how that changes the dynamic of a community when we're all seeking to love God first by loving one another? That affects the life of a community. Have you ever been engaged in life with com in communities where that's not the desire? Where the desire is to, is to engage you get all the way close up to the line with people to say, hey, let's do this or let's do that. And you realize this isn't going in the right direction. And what happens is things spill over. Relational vows are broken. And then what does that do to the community? It causes hurt. It causes damage. It causes harm. And so what Paul is saying is that the way you love your brother or sister is to honor them before God. You can do this with any commandment. Any of these commandments. What are the duties required in the 10th commandment? Anybody know what the 10th commandment is? Thou shalt not covet. All right? It's good to memorize those. The duties required in the 10th commandment are such a full contentment with our own condition. Think about this. This is what's required of you in the 10th commandment. Such a full contentment with your own condition and such a charitable orientation of our whole soul toward our neighbors so that all of our inward motions and desires relating to them tend to and work for the support of everything of theirs which is good. You are so completely and ultimately satisfied in who you are and in what you have that anything that anyone else has, you can absolutely 100% totally completely celebrate inside your own heart and outside with your actions. That's what it means not to covet. I don't know about you, but I probably failed at that this week. I have probably failed at that this week. What sins are forbidden? The sins forbidden in the 10th commandment are discontent with our own state and envy and grief at the good state of our neighbors together with all excessive feelings and desires for anything that is theirs. You think about covet, you go, why is this in the top 10? Why is it such a, it's not like murdering someone, it's wanting what someone else has. Man, I'd love to have that, you know, have you seen the new uh, electronic vehicle that, doesn't run, that runs on nuclear power and, you, and they pay you money to drive it? Have you seen, oh, I'd love to have that, but he's got it, mm. right? Why is that a big deal? That's just inside me. But the issue with coveting is, if somebody has something that I want, it's possible that I could become resentful of them. I could become embittered toward them. 
I could treat them differently because I would say, man, you don't deserve that. I deserve to have that. And I don't know what you did. You just got lucky because you were born into this family or you just inherited this money. But I deserve that. And then I would treat them differently. I would not love or care for them. I would say, oh, this person, because they have this, they think they're better than me. Have you ever walked into a room and felt insecure because of what other people had? Whether it was their money, it was their sense of humor, whether it was their thick, lustrous hair, whatever it was, you walk in and you feel like you're less than. You don't have to raise your hand, but I would imagine for most of us, there's been a moment in life where we have had that feeling because somebody else has something we don't have. And instead of walking in and saying, I am a son of the king and Jesus has saved me and he has made me and he has given me the specific gifts and talents that I have. And so I walk into this room and say, how can I serve this person in this position? It's possible that they're getting their identity from their things and they may not even know it. So I want to love and embrace them where they are, despite of the way that they look down upon me. That's not generally how we feel. We walk in and go, oh man, I don't have that. I'm not like that. They think I'm a loser. They think I'm dumb. They think I'm whatever. But God calls us through saying, do not covet, to remember that we are completely, fully whole in Christ. When we begin to covet, which we do, we realize, oh, I'm wanting something that I don't need because I have everything that I need. I've got Jesus and all that he offers. So I can walk into any room confident of who I am because of what Christ has done for me. And what that allows me to do is to love people, is to love every person. Even if they've got a ton of stuff and they think they know everything, I can love them. I can also love the person who is, by outward appearances, below me. They don't have as much stuff. I would never see myself as better than a person who has less because I know the only things that I've been, the things that I've been given are a gift of God. He gave me my intellect. He gave me my sense of humor. He gave me my ability to administer or to speak or to, to do math or whatever it is that makes me successful. Those are gifts from God. And so I see those gifts as, as a blessing that enable me to, to help people in the situation. You see what saying don't covet does? It moves us to love. And we don't feel insecure. We don't feel less than. And we don't feel more than because we know that only by grace has God given us what he's given us. That is what Paul is getting at when he says, you fulfill the law of God when you love people. And the only way, the only way you can love people in those kinds of situations is when you know you're so deeply and profoundly loved by Jesus. When you have that feeling well up inside you, you can say, you know, I remember that the Bible says, Jesus loves me, this I know. And that's the most important aspect of who I am. So as you face this day, as you face this week, as you make decisions about what you're supposed to do and who you are, you remember that all your decisions are formed fundamentally, foundationally from your life in Christ. But we all know that that's not our default operating mode. We need to be reminded of that. You need to be reminded of it from this, this wooden pulpit. You need to be reminded of it from the Word of God. And to be able to, to really love people 
in the way that Paul is calling the church in Rome to love the culture. And by, by loving the culture, I don't, I don't mean saying just join in in every way. Because when you love someone, you have to tell them no sometimes. If you have children, you have had this experience before. You, we need boundaries. But the way that we really love people is to be so full of Jesus that his life has gotten to be in our lives so much and so significantly that in increasing measure, as we go along, we are more able to love those above or below. By the way, those are false categories. And how does that happen, right? It happens with the daily walking with Jesus, the daily surrendering our, our brokenness and our sin to him, the daily reflection upon and study of his word. Twitter is not going to tell you what's in here. Instagram, TikTok, the, the crossword puzzle is not going to give you what you need. Whatever your thing that is that you do to waste time. Netflix, not there. It's in here. And if you want to have a, a, a bountiful crop of fruit of the Holy Spirit, it takes a cultivation, right? And I'm not a gardener, but I've grown things. I come from farmers. My uncle Curtis was a farmer in Iowa. And in order to grow a crop, what do you got to do? You have to till that soil. You have to make sure that it gets water. If you can't, have, if there's not enough rain, you've got to plant the seeds just down the road. You've got to make sure that it gets fertilized. You've got to tend that garden, tend that farm in order for the crop to grow. And so if you want to be ready for the day of persecution that is coming in this country, if you want to be ready for the difficulty, for the challenge, for when you lose your job, for when you have a broken relationship, for when someone calls you something or says you're less than, if you want to be ready for that, the way to get ready is to spend time with Jesus, is to sit at his feet, to practice and cultivate the spiritual disciplines of prayer, of reading the word, of worship, of meditation. Friends, we are never going to change this culture by getting our people into office, whoever your people are. We're not going to do it with legislation. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have people of faith engage in the political sphere. I think people of faith should engage in entertainment, in medicine, in academics, in all those areas, athletics. We need believers to go in and do. But those systems and institutions are going to change as people live out their faith within those institutions. And the only way we're going to live out our faith is by following and loving Jesus. Is, I mean, America is not a Christian country unless the people of the country are following Jesus. So we've got to follow Jesus. And spending time in his word daily, just love him and just be thankful for him. This is what he says, verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So who is your neighbor? Right, we're called to love who's your neighbor. And one, one way of looking at who your neighbor is to say, it's everybody. Right? It's the Ukrainians, it's the Russians, it's the people from Malta, it's the people from Texas, it's everybody. And there's a sense in which every person is my neighbor. But that kind of makes it easy for me to go, I don't have to love them because I don't encounter them any. Who is your literal neighbor? Do you know your next door neighbor's first name? Do you know the people who work next to you in the building or in the, in the office next door? Do you know their literal name? Are you able to have a conversation with them and to say, hey, how's it going? 
right? So we look at the, the story of uh, Jesus asked that question, who is my neighbor? And um, a man was heard on the side of the road, and a priest and a Levite, you know, the religious guys, walked right past, and, and the Samaritan was the one. Now remember, the Samaritans were the people that the Jews didn't like. So it's a challenging statement to hear the story that the, the religious people walked past, the faithful people walked past, but the broken person, the dysfunctional person who had the wrong religion entered in and cared for the person in need. It's a powerful lesson to us to say, who is our neighbor? Who are the people that we can love? So here's what I'm asking you to do. It's time to go. I want you to, oh, it's only 10.30. We got a whole another hour to go. I guess, the, I guess no one changed that clock, sorry. Here's what I want you to do. Just take a minute and ask God, who is my neighbor that needs to be loved? Not who is my neighbor that I want to love, but who is my neighbor that needs to be loved? Take a second, and then I'm going to close in prayer. I'm going to ask you to do what God told you. Just take a minute, consider who's my neighbor God's asking me to love. Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandpres.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.